Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Investigates. I'm your host, April Glover. This week, our episode's going to be a little bit different. In a world where we are deeply fascinated with true crime, digging into the lives of perpetrators and victims, and vicariously living through these horrific stories, there's a side to it we always tend to forget. And that is the police officers who see it all. These heroes are in the thick of it, of every terrible and haunting case. From homicides, to 10-car pileups and terrorist attacks. But the emotional toll it can take on our cops is very rarely spoken about. Police officers are regarded as strong and invincible protectors who can't get hurt. But they can and they do. Seeing death, destruction, tragedy and turmoil on a daily basis is not normal. Sadly, not many members of the police force feel comfortable or even safe talking about their emotions or mental health. Their mantra is to bottle it up and forget about it. Tomorrow is a new day. Our guest on today's episode is former Victorian police officer Cameron Hardiman. He knows very well just how devastating ignoring your mental health on the force can be. Cam spent 34 long years working in the Victorian police force from the air wing to counter-terrorism. Graduating from the police academy at 19, Cam had no idea just how severely life on the blue line would affect him later on. From drug busts, daring helicopter rescues, to the raging Black Saturday bushfires, Cameron really has seen it all. And he's even written a book on it. In his new novel, Ten Feet Tall and Not Quite Bulletproof, Cam delves into the darkest parts of a career in policing. He suffered in silence for over three decades, forcing himself to live up to the unrealistic stereotype of a strong, unflappable policeman. And cops are terrified of admitting they need help because they worry it could affect or even end their career. Here's our interview with Cam. And just a warning, some of the content we speak about can be triggering. If you or someone you know needs help, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. So Cameron, you've had a 34-year career in the Victoria Police Force. You've worked everywhere from a general duties cop to the air wing and even in counterterrorism. You've seen it all and you've even written the book on it now, 10 feet tall and not quite bulletproof. But despite the heroism of it all, there was and still is, of course, a dark side to being a cop. But you didn't know that when you first applied as a young recruit. Can you tell me why you decided to become a police officer and why you decided to apply? When I left school, um, I was 17 and um, I didn't get good enough marks to go into university, um, probably because I hardly ever turned up. So I did what I thought was best for me and I went surfing and nightclubbing and watching bands and um, eventually you run out of money and I saw a TV ad on, um, you know, during the breaks of television and it looked like an exciting ad recruiting for the Victoria Police Force. And I suppose as a young kid that needs a job, 
what better job to do than become a copper? And I did. Absolutely. It is every young boy's dream to be the hero, isn't it? But at that age, you probably had no idea the psychological toll a career like that could take on you. No, absolutely not. I mean, and, and they're not going to advertise that on the commercial either. You know, I think they're uh, advertising the fun and that's what they wanted. They want someone that's going to come in and, and want that exciting lifestyle. But if they said, you know, you can do a career in the police force and end up with a mental health issue, I don't think they'd get me too many applicants, mm. really. But I had no idea. And on that note, in, in your training, do they drill anything into you about how to deal with trauma on the job? Well, back then, I mean, we're talking about 1985 when we went through the police academy and um, back in the 80s, PTSD wasn't even thought to uh, – and, and, and police officers wasn't even a relationship. They didn't even know that mm-hmm. coppers actually suffered from PTSD. Um, they knew the military and soldiers suffered from it, so it was a military domain. They never – thought the coppers would and now they've just realized that there's just as many coppers with PTSD as there are soldiers. Can you tell me about the first case that you remember that left you feeling a little bit emotionally damaged or left you feeling like you needed to talk to someone but you couldn't? I think it took about nearly 25 years to be to get to that stage where I thought I needed to talk to someone because Mm. no one ever talked to anyone back then. You're expected to do the job and move on to the next one. If you thought you were psychologically damaged or needed a psychologist, then you'd be taken off the street and stuck in a desk job. So mm-hmm. no one spoke up. I mean, there are plenty of jobs where I, I should have, in hindsight, gone to speak to someone. That's that probably the earliest must have been uh, about uh, 1985 or 1986 for a fatal accident or a suicide. And I probably should have spoken to someone back then, but I didn't. But I didn't know I was sick either. And that is the issue that we don't talk in the police force. Um, we might talk to each other. Um, over a beer, but we don't go and talk to anyone else about it. No, and, and seeing that much death and destruction on a daily basis, it, did it desensitise you to it and that's why it took so long for you to want to seek help? Yeah, I think it does desensitise you, but it's very quick. I mean, I, there's that part of you that says, yes, I need to desensitise it, but I also need to get over it because I've got to do another job. If you can understand, you go out for an eight-hour shift and your first job might be a fatal accident. You've got to get over that quite quickly because you've got another six hours to finish mm. and anything can happen in that time and then once you finish that shift you've got to go home and try and get some sleep get up in the morning for your following shift you don't know what's going to happen then so you had to ignore it otherwise you wouldn't be able to do the job imagine if we took a day off every time we had it went to a fatal accident no one would turn up to work the following day there'd be no coppers mm-hmm. there's only an infinite amount of police on the streets and they expect them to turn up every day so would you say in a way you felt like you had to repress it, not only from talking it to your colleagues or your superiors, but also bring it back home too? Did you feel like you had to I definitely up? wouldn't bring it back home. Mm. There's, um, I dealt with it um, by ignoring it. And then the second I walked out the door at work, I hung my shirt up in my locker. I put my T-shirt on and walked out the door. And it's almost as if there's a big bin and you dump all your emotions and all the jobs in that bin and you walk away a free man and you go home. I thought there'd be nothing worse than sitting at home and telling my partner about the bad day I had because I don't think, one, I don't think she needs to hear it and two is I don't want to talk about it because I've, I've put it aside. I've put it in that bin. Mm. I want to move on. I've got to get ready for the next shift. You said, you know, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't let yourself think about these things but at, at the time on the job when you saw awful things like in, in car crashes or perhaps children even being killed did, did it affect you at the time? Did Not at the time, no. I just did my job at the time. Yeah. I did what I was expected to do. And I thought I was pretty good at my job. I gave it 110%. And at the end of it, 
regardless of what the outcome, I was happy with the effort I put in and what I did. So therefore, I was able to move on. Cam was a good and dedicated cop. He moved up the ranks and joined the prestigious air wing. For a young policeman, the thought of flying through the sky in heroic missions was a dream come true. At first, it didn't occur to him the danger and sheer risk he'd put himself in every single day. This was no desk job. But he didn't care. Things seemed to go smoothly for the young cop. That is, until one particular rescue out in the Bass Strait, a stretch of ocean separating Tasmania from the mainland. It was February 3rd, 2005, and Cam and his partner Ray were out on a rescue mission to save a lone 71-year-old yachtsman named Ron Palmer. Ron was halfway through a round-the-world journey when he unwittingly sailed into the eye of a monstrous storm brewing in the Bass Strait. His yacht's masthead had snapped and he was floundering in the heavy seas. Cam was winched down to save Ron from drowning alone in the terrifying ocean storm. In his book, Cam describes Ron being thrown around like an inflatable toy. As he was slowly lowered down, in an instant, everything went black. Cam had been plunged into the black icy waters, and it was like being hit by a truck. He was terrified, and for the first time, he thought he was going to die. And it, does, it sounds like you were very good at your job. You quickly moved through the ranks and you went to the air wing, yep. which sounds incredible, like every day was like an action movie. What was it really like? You know, there was long periods of boredom. When there's no jobs or budget didn't allow us to fly, we sat around and talked and carried on and, you know, read books. And mm. But every now and then a job would come up and there'd be uh, five minutes of sheer terror. But we lived for it and we couldn't wait for a job to come up and get outside the hangar, close the hangar doors, start the helicopter and go. Mm. It was just, I reckon it was the best job I've ever had. You must be quite fearless and that's in the title. You must. You also felt like you were bulletproof. Did that help with the with being on the job? I think every copper, regardless of where they are, thinks they're bulletproof when they put the uniform on. And to a certain degree, it's probably a good way to be so you can go out there mm. um, if you were timid or scared of going out there. And uh, I don't think you'd put on the uniform in the first place. That idea of feeling bulletproof, though, that must have contributed to the the psychological toll that it took on you as well. Well, I think at the end, when it all comes back to catch up with you, there's this realisation that you are human, uh, you do have emotions, and I think that was the biggest impact. Mm. Because with PTSD, you've got this, your feeling of self sort of disappears. You have these self-worth issues where you don't think you were good enough. But when you think you were 10 foot tall and bulletproof all those years for 30 years and suddenly you felt fear, you were scared, you were sad, all those emotions that you've been repressing for so many years come back to you, you realise very quickly that all this thing about being bulletproof and a superhero and being able to handle everything and, and dismiss all this, all these emotions, is, it doesn't exist. You are human and eventually it comes back. And it's a huge realisation that says, wow, all this has come back now. I was, or perhaps I should have dealt with things a bit differently. Mm. And speaking of it all coming back kind of to haunt you later in life, there was a certain mission that you've described in the book as sort of the day of reckoning. Can you tell us a bit about I that? I think there's a, that's the um, rescue of Ron Palmer in Bass Strait. And Ron Palmer was a 73-year-old yachtsman who built his own yacht. He loved Captain Cook. He wrote a few books on it and he said, one day I'm going to, circumnavigate the world and he got caught out in a storm in Bass Strait 
his yacht rolled. He'd uh, damaged his arm, lost his mast, and he was floundering. And we had to winch him off, and it it uh, got incredibly rough. And that's the first time I actually felt scared of anything. Up until then, I was fearless, whether it be because I was mentally strong or just stupid. I, I was fearless, and I, I suddenly got scared. And that's the day of reckoning. And from then on, all these other things started to creep into my mind and keep me up, like car accidents that I hadn't thought about in 25 years. The earliest thing that come back to me happened in 1994. What was that? That was a truck accident. And I had a, you know, just flashes of this truck accident constantly every morning. And then, um, you know, I'd step out of the shower and all of a sudden I can see um, a body in a helicopter fuselage. And that happened in 94 as well. And I haven't thought about this helicopter crash in so many years. And all of a sudden, every time I go out the shower, I can see this guy's face. Were there particular triggers for things like that to happen? Look, I, th- I think there are triggers for all of this to happen, but I don't even know what they are yet. So you've got to tread warily and, and just take everything slowly because, I mean, I don't think that the trigger for this helicopter crash was me having a shower. It must have been something else, and I don't know what it is yet. But that was with me every morning. And when that starts to bottle up and then you're not sleeping, then you, you start to wear yourself down and you end up, like well, for me, it ended up uh, culminating in a, a breakdown which mm-hmm. happened on a train on the way home. And just going back to the, the Bass Strait Rescue quickly, that was that the first time you f- realised that you weren't actually bulletproof because you sort of had a brush with death yourself in that moment? Yeah, I look, my first brush with death was when I was surfing and Right. As a young kid, but I was, I wasn't. I don't think I had the intelligence to to work that out. I was quite stupid. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I got smashed by a wave when I was surfing and nearly drowned. I actually thought I was going to drown, but something happened. And I managed to get myself to shore. But me being me, I just turned around and went back into surf. Some normal person probably would have said, "Look, I'll have a rest." And surfing's probably not for me. Mm-hmm. That was my mentality when I was an eighteen-year-old. This sometimes takes a, the, a a job like Ron Palmer to make you realise. And that was for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it took something that significant to give me a tap on the shoulder and make me wake up and realise that I wasn't fearless mm-hmm. and I wasn't bulletproof and that maybe I should ignore my emotions. Did you think you were going to die on that mission? Ron Palmer? Yeah. Yeah, there was a, there was a particular space in time when I was underwater because I got thrown off the yacht and I was sinking and I didn't know which way was up. And I knew it would take a certain amount of time before the winch operator in the helicopter would winch me out of the water and my lungs had been winded so I didn't have any air in my lungs and I thought if I inhale now, I'm going to suck in salt water and I'll be gone. And there's that small split second where I think, I'm gone, I'm buggered. And then I got winched out of the water. But that's enough. That's all you need Mm. is to make you realise that, A, maybe it's time to move on or perhaps this job's not for you or, more importantly... I'm not invincible. Incredibly, both Cam and Ron Palmer survived. At one point, the elderly yachtsman was literally hanging onto the winch by a thread. But miraculously, he made it. As Cam says, it was the first time in his career he truly thought that he might die. But of course, he couldn't let it get to him. So he bottled it up, tried to forget, and moved on. 
Sadly, that near-death experience in the man-eating waves of the Bass Strait would be the catalyst for Cam's emotional breakdown 10 years later. On July 17th, 2015, Cam was sitting on a train in Melbourne when something inside of him just snapped. This is how Cam describes that moment in his book. I was overcome, flooded by indefinable grief. My heart started to pound and a tremble started deep inside me that rocked my body. My breathing accelerated out of control, but at the same time I was struggling for air. Tears sprang up in my eyes, filling my vision, rolling down my cheeks. Cam was remembering every moment of the hell that was his rescue mission in the Bass Strait in vivid detail for the first time in a decade. It triggered a panic attack so bad he couldn't return to work. Then from the air wing, you did move on to counterterrorism. Was there a feeling of relief for you at all that you were going into a different line of work? Maybe it's just as dangerous, but different at least? Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed investigations a lot. I started off with people smuggling and then general crime and then went into investigations and uh, counterterrorism. And I loved it. It was different. Instead of wearing a flight suit, I wore a blue suit and tie. I thoroughly loved it. And it was just a pity that I had the breakdown because I'd still be there now. It was a great job too. You must have seen some horrific things on that job as well. Um, I think, look, I don't, it doesn't matter where you are in policing, you're going to get subjected to some horrific things over yeah. the years. And yeah, I did. But believe it or not, that's not what I have the issues with now. You know, the stuff I have the issues with now um, happened in the younger part of my career. And I think maybe it's because as young blokes, we, our emotion and our brain doesn't develop to around 25. And uh, most of this stuff, um, the big car accidents and the big jobs of suicides and murders happened, I experienced when I was younger, 18, 19, mm. 20. And I hadn't even developed emotionally as a person yet. Mm. I really wasn't even an adult. So, you know, my, my time in counterterrorism, I don't have any... And yeah, I did see some horrible things, but I don't, I don't carry any, there's no burden with seeing that. Mm. Well, I don't know yet. Well, who, who knows? That's the problem. PTSD comes later. Mm. You don't know. And you mentioned earlier there are no particular triggers that you can think of. But what was exactly the catalyst, I suppose, for that emotional breakdown that you mentioned earlier as well? Oh, there's a couple of theories that people have told me over the years. Um, uh, one of them was that I'd sort of uh, finished a lot of the work I'd been uh, trying to do over the years and sort of settled down in my career and was actually having fun and everything was quiet and had the family at home, had a house, a couple of kids, uh, my career was settled and then it's when I was the most relaxed and the most comfortable, it decided that that was time to come home. And some people or some professionals seem to think something I've heard something or maybe a song or a sound or so saw something that triggered the whole lot. Um, but I don't know. Mm. It's funny how the brain works to protect you by repressing stuff, but in the end it, it did more harm than good, didn't it? Oh, yeah, I think we repress all these emotions just to do the job and unfortunately uh, they don't go away. They just mm. sit there and wait for their time to come back. Mm. I think they've got to be dealt with sometime. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I'd, in hindsight I should have dealt with them back then, back at the time that they happened rather than putting it off and putting it off. I said in the book that I was immune to emotion, but I don't think I was immune. I was just ignoring it. Mm. But we all did it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a culture of it. And you said, you know, 
if you had have mentioned back then that you weren't dealing or you weren't coping, that you would have been put to desk duties? Yeah, but well, what people expect the police to come to work and get on the street and patrol the streets and and mm. attend crime. They don't want uniformed coppers uh, attending crime and doing all that that have got issues. Mm. So that was that was just the mentality back then. You know, I think it's different now. I hope it's different, and it should be. I think that if a copper nowadays has a problem and he's not sleeping and is having nightmares and flashbacks, I think they should deal with that as just a work injury, mm-hmm. not a psychological problem that says, hey, this guy can't carry a gun and he shouldn't go out in the street. Mm-hmm. And we're going to deal with it properly. But I'd like to think that people are a bit smarter than what I am and know what PTSD is all about and can self-monitor and say, look, I'm not feeling good because I'm having this symptom, this symptom, and I need to see a doctor. Mm. I mean, if I was armed with the information I know now, back 10, 20 years ago, I probably wouldn't be in the situation I'm in now without a job. And Cameron, you're on, you're on leave at the moment, is that how it's No, no, I'm still, I'm still on the books with the Federal Police, mm-hmm. but I'm just... Uh, I'm caught in the middle of a lot of paperwork at the moment, so I have to wait and see what happens. And I guess with your book, well, was one of your goals to try and humanise police officers and let people know that you aren't bulletproof and you are humans with emotions? Definitely. Yeah. And and another – well, not only that, not only people, but also I wanted coppers to read it to make to make them realise that they're not. And also the partners and family of coppers. So these are the stories that – your partner and friend won't tell you because they don't want to put you through it and this is why. Mm. So I hope that a lot of people read it and say, okay, I understand now. For the first time in his career, Cam has gained the courage to speak openly about his mental health and the dark place he was in after repressing his emotions for far too long. Australia has a toxic culture of encouraging men to ignore their mental health. Telling our boys that speaking about it and admitting that you're not okay is weak or unmasculine. But as Cam says, that is utter rubbish. He wishes he had known that 34 years ago. He wishes he and his fellow policemen knew they could talk about their emotions and what they saw on the job. He doesn't want young recruits in the police force to attend a homicide where they're confronted with a horrific scene, only to go home and try to ignore the feelings of pain and grief that bubble to the surface. His book is not just a guiding light for new cops, but it's also a way to encourage officers, both active or retired, to ask for help when they need it. And what about young recruits? Is it something that you, that you hope that they could read and prepare themselves before? I, I hope so. Yeah. Um, like I said, if I had known what I know now, I probably would have seen a doctor 20 years ago. Mm. And my career would have gone until I was 60, 65. But now it's cut short. It's not what I intended. But if I only had known what the symptoms of PTSD were, I probably would have picked it up back in the mid-90s. Do you think the key is asking for help the moment you feel like you're emotionally touched by a case? Or when is the line? where's the line for this? I think if you, you believe you're suffering from or you have the same symptoms of, as PTSD, that's the stage where you go and see your doctor and say, what's wrong? Mm. And for those who don't know, what are the symptoms? Oh, look, they're long and varied. And I think Mm. you just don't need to know the actual symptom, but also how it presents itself. Because we all talk about depression, but do people actually know how depression presents itself? 
and anxiety and and I'm going through them now, but there's hypervigilance. What's hypervigilance about? I had no idea until it was explained to me. And there's also an overreaction to, um, an overstimulated reaction to like sources of noise or sounds. There's a whole bunch. I think there's about 17 or 18 symptoms and you need a certain amount to be diagnosed. And I'd say that, look, hypervigilance is probably my biggest problem at the moment and that's where you're always on edge. Your heart rate's always up. Your respiratory rate's always up. You're always on standby for something to happen. Most coppers are like that. They've all got that. And they end up, they end, like they have it when they work. Eventually, after a long career, they have it all the time. Mm. Even on their weekend off, they have, they're hypervigilant. But is that drilled into you during training to be hypervigilant? No, I think it's a skill you develop while you're working. And with these symptoms that you, you did suffer and probably still have sometimes, have you been taught ways to deal with it? Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, treatment nowadays is about information, mm. about learning about PTSD and the symptoms and and like I said, how they present themselves, but also how do you avoid triggers? You know, another symptom is anger. You have this really over-the-top anger and also a very short fuse. So how do you avoid that? So you learn, you learn all these things. Uh, you, never, uh, you never get cured from PTSD once it reaches a certain level. All you can hope for is that you learn how to live a normal life and, and negotiate around the triggers and some unfortunately some you can't avoid and there's things that you can do to stop yourself getting triggered yep to ground yourself Mm. and you learn them too interestingly enough even after all the trauma the pain the tears and the anguish cam wouldn't go back and change much being a cop is a heroic job he says saving people's lives and making a difference makes it all worth it it was the best fun he ever had He might be paying for it now, but at least he can help other people in his position find the courage to get help and speak about their own mental health. Despite all this, do you have any regrets about the career path you've chosen or, you know, what you did with your life? No, none whatsoever. I'd do it all again. Really? Yeah, it's the best fun I ever had. And I think most coppers would say that. Mm. Say the best fun they ever had. Even the ones that are are damaged would say they had fun. Mm. It is a good career, but as long as you look after yourself. You know, I didn't, so um, I pay the price, but I think that most coppers nowadays have got the tools and the services to help them as long as I use it. Where did the fun come into it? Was that the adrenaline you got in a rescue mission, that kind of thing? The fun was all around, even going to a job, Mm. Um, even in a divisional van and driving to a job was fun. Um, Arresting was fun. You can imagine the worst job you can ever do in policing, it was still fun. And as a young recruit, going back to that, did a part of you want to be a cop because you wanted to help people make the world a better place? As Look, well? I I hear that all the time, and I hear people say they want to be a policeman because mm. I just like to help people. But you know, I wanted to be a policeman because I wanted to have a ball, and it looked like an exciting job. I enjoyed helping people, but I enjoyed the thrill of it, and I enjoyed the the adrenaline. But that was what it was about for me. So you, you know? couldn't imagine a life sitting behind a desk. No, like I couldn't. No. no, no way. So no regrets in that? No regrets. I'll do it all again tomorrow. But of course, as you said, you'd, you would deal with it differently. You'd go, you'd seek help the first time you needed it yeah. and not repress it. Yeah. Yep. Bit of knowledge. Um, and all I can recommend for people is know what the symptoms are, know how they present themselves. Mm-hmm. And if you get any, go and see your doctor. And on that note, what do you think does need to change within the police force to look, look after police officers better and ensure this doesn't uh, I think they need to educate 
the coppers about PTSD. It seems to be that most of the actions by police forces are now to pick up the pieces and send them off to have a work cover claim or go see a doctor after something's happened. Mm. I think you need to put posters around police stations to say what the symptoms are and and also provide them with um, a service that they can go to if they do realise they've got the symptoms. Mm. That is going to be confidential. Watching the news, you must have a certain type of empathy for the police officers and what they see when you see read about things such as perhaps maybe those three beautiful children that were killed in Oatlands mm. in Sydney. Do you think about what the, the officers on the scene and what they're going First through? First thing I thought about when I saw that, I don't actually watch the news. I get my news reports off Twitter because they're limited mm. and then I only have to read what I think I want to read. But the first thing I thought about then is I hope they're helping the coppers out. It's the same as the fires in Victoria mm-hmm. and, and New South Wales. There's a lot of money going to the victims and people lost their houses. But you think in in a few years' time, some of these fire brigade people on coppers and ambos are going to have some significant mental health issues. And they've, all they've got to help them is the work cover system, which is just terrible. Not enough. They're going to have to fight for everything. And we all know why they have it. So I hope they're looking after them. Mm. It'd be a shame if they're not. But I think the only thing we're guaranteed nowadays is we know for a fact that one in four coppers are going to have PTSD. Mm-hmm. So you think the amount of fires or emergency services went to the fires and how many coppers went to these this car accident with the the kids? That's a lot of coppers and fires and ambos are going to have PTSD in five to ten years. I think it also contributes to a wider discussion about mental health and men who don't seek help because they want to seem like they're they're indestructible and invincible as well. Yeah, I mean that's and that's been around for years. Mm-hmm. That's a couple of hundred years men have been thinking that way. But I think it's time to get over that, really. Just get over it. There's nothing like if you've got a mental this doesn't mean you're gonna be labelled that you've got a mental health problem for the rest of your life. You can actually do something about it, get treatment, get over it and go back to what you're doing. No loss. And especially with PTSD, I think a lot of coppers and ambos and fireys think it's a bad thing and to have this PTSD. But at the end of the day, I've been treated fantastic by my friends and peers and everyone that knows of PTSD because there's this understanding of where you got it from. You mm-hmm. got it from having been subject to all this trauma over a whole lifetime of policing. So they get it. They understand. They actually want the best for you. So most of this problem with being a man and mental health issues comes from within the person, not from everyone else it's they don't want to be seen as being inferior or not a man everyone else knows they're fine with it so you just got to get got to get past it and get help it's important to lift the taboo and i think discussions like this and what you've written in your book is really helping that well i hope so yeah, yeah i do hope so thank you for listening to today's episode if you'd like to pick up a copy of cam's book 10 feet tall and not quite bulletproof It's available now at any good bookshop. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review and subscribe. Don't forget to tune in next week. Thanks and goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.